So from God's Word, the English Standard Version, beginning in Luke 8, verse 16, Jesus is speaking. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to his word and to those who hear believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. Uh, the sermon title is, is a question, did you hear that? That's the title. Uh, and it just is that simple phrase that we have often used ourselves when we're uncertain. We've heard something, and we're looking to confirm it. There's a noise in the night, and you roll over and say, did you hear that? Hmm, what? I was asleep. We, we ask for confirmation to check that, have I heard something or not? And when you hear the thump in the night, you either, okay, I didn't really hear anything, and there's no action required, you roll over and go back to sleep. Or if you agree you heard something and, and you think you know what you heard, you have to take action if you heard correctly. Or how about not just a bump in the night? Let's say you're listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says something such as, uh, take care then how you hear. Did he say that it's important how I hear? I'm hearing it. I hear those words. How I hear. What is it? If we are listening... And if we're hearing, action is required. Did you hear that? Some people go on living as though they didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. I'm not worried about anything. But when we hear something of importance, we need to respond. We need to react. We need to do something about that. I heard it. I am hearing it. And you see how that lines up. Jesus, having just presented a parable, the the four soils and the seed sown, the seed is the word of God, he now speaks further about the right response to the word that's been revealed. His teachings, the gospel, what God has made known so far, and what God will yet make known through his apostles. So this message is about hearing the word of God. And we will try to get practical in the middle because it's so important. This is something we all seem to be committed to because here you are sitting for the next hour and a half. No, 
You're sitting for an extended period of time to listen to God's word being explained and preached. And this is a good thing. We're out of step with our society. Short attention span. They're not Bible literate. But we're here. We're reading. We're hearing. And this is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we'll see how dear we are to him if we hear and obey when we get to the second paragraph. But let's start with this this new metaphor that Jesus gives, this light metaphor. He talks about a lamp. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar. I can hear some people rolling their eyes. Of course, who would, in the darkness, strike a flint and get the oil lamp burning only to cover it up? Jesus, that's a no-brainer. Did I hear you right? Well, Jesus is teaching And it's not just about an oil lamp made of terracotta. You know, the the saucer, and it could be round or it could be square. And sometimes you've seen the square one where the corners are pinched. And you can have two wicks going out each side, and the saucer would hold the oil. Sometimes it would be covered, sometimes it would be open. Or it would have a handle on one side. And in the ancient world, you probably didn't have too many of those, so you would carry it from room to room. And so when you've lit it and come into a new room, where do you put it? You don't put it under the bed. You don't put it under a jar. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This new metaphor is speaking about the word of God. And it's not new to the Bible. Who knows Psalm 119, verse 105. If you know that verse, raise your hand. 119, 105. It is a good one. And boys and girls, I hope you will learn Psalm 119, 105. And you can learn it. In a, a variety, I'll give you two translations, and one is pretty memorable. It says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or in the ESV, your word. Your word, God, is a lamp to my feet. I can see where I am. And a light to my path. I can see where I'm going. I was a, a very young person in the 70s, and I was converted in the 70s, and someone had given me the living Bible. The cover said the way. It's kind of a paraphrase. It's not a strict translation, but uh, God used it for a season in my life. And you know how they translate verse 105? This caught my attention, and I remember the day I read it. It said, your words are a flashlight. I said, I know in Bible times they didn't have batteries and flashlights. But it said, your words are a flashlight to light the path ahead of me and keep me from stumbling. The truth is true. God's word is a light, is a lamp. And we shouldn't get fixated on whether it's a terracotta oil lamp, burning olive oil, or you've got a couple of Duracells behind your lens and bulb. God's word has this function And boys and girls, remember, you're going to memorize Psalm 119.105, okay? Let me know if you do. Because God's word will guide us. It will be faithful. The concept is not new to the Bible, but Jesus turns from the agricultural seed and soil and things growing picture of the gospel and his word. He changes the metaphor to light. What is the purpose of light? The purpose of light is to reveal Things unseen because of darkness. 
So you know where you are and you know where you can go or you know where you can't go and you see danger as well as you see the right way. Light is so helpful. And Jesus has taught us the seed must be sown and the light must be shining. He then, this part where he says you don't hide it under a jar, put it under your lamp. What is he talking about? He's talking about the proper use of a lamp And he does it so that he could teach us, his listeners, about the proper use of his word. Okay? Jesus wasn't advocating putting lamps under the bed. But he's teaching about how some people will receive God's word and hear it and even appreciate it, but they won't be faithful with it. They won't recognize its utility in their life or in the lives of others. It doesn't help you to take in God's word and do nothing with it. To know a Bible verse by memory, but never use it. The proper purpose of the word is to reveal things in darkness and show us the way. Jesus teaches the wrong way and the right way to get the attention of those who are listening to him. There's a scholar with a long foreign name. He's got one of the best commentaries on Luke. It's still in print. Norval Geldenhus. I don't know if that's Norwegian or Swedish. He says, Jesus initiates his followers into the true knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom, not for them to hide such knowledge, but to make it known without hindrance or reservation to all with whom they come in contact. Jesus doesn't give you knowledge of the gospel, believe and be saved. No one comes to the Father but by me. All the promises of the gospel that you have heard and believed are to be a light that you hold out when you're in a room A light for your own benefit and a light for the world's benefit. You're not only helping yourselves, but you're helping others too. Do you know how the Bible describes those who are yet unbelievers? Do you know Ephesians chapter 2? Talks about how we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Ephesians 2. But it goes on to remind us where we once were if we're Gentiles. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, uh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a spiritual darkness without the word of God, without the gospel, and without Christ. So if we've been enlightened and if we have had our eyes open and we now possess this gospel, even in jars of clay, we are to let it shine for the sake of others as well as for ourselves. So back here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus taught that you don't cover it up, you let it shine from a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And then verse 17 17 and 18. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret 
that will not be known and come to light. Verse 17 is hard. Verse 17 is a bit cryptic to most commentators. But we have a sense of what it likely means. I think it's referring to the power of this word. This light. Uh, It's pretty passive to talk about a little oil lamp or a flashlight. As opposed to a high beam laser. Some light that has more power. Jesus doesn't want his hearers to underestimate the power of revealed truth. He's talking about how this word from him to us is that light. And he says nothing that is hidden will remain hidden. He's talking about the power of this light. And it must mean a couple of things at least. That there's nothing hidden in us. Our sins will be revealed by this light. Our hypocrisy. Our lack of believing and obeying. This has eschatological implications for the end times. At the last day, all will be revealed, and human beings will give account for every idle word and deed. God's light will make all things plain. Nothing is hidden that will not be manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The word of God is not Uh, just a a line on a a page-a-day calendar or embroidered on a wall hanging. God's word has power. And God's word will rule the universe. A couple verses about the power of God's word, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. You may be thinking of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17.10 records this I am I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds God sees and searches and pierces all things or Hebrews 4:12 I like this because it talks about swords as it talks about the power of God's word this light Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word gets to the heart of the matter. It's possible verse 17 was simply referring to Not just to the teachings of Jesus, but to when the New Testament was finished. When more light was brought to bear. We would have a fuller picture of the things Jesus is teaching. So whether verse 17 refers to the New Testament being completed and more light being given. Or it refers to the end times or to judgment or the comprehensive omniscience of God. It points us to the power of God. And verse 18 does the same Verse 18 begins with a command, which we'll take up in a moment. Take care how you hear. But it talks about the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. That reflects again on the power of God's word. The power of God's word to bless, cultivate, and keep. Or the power of God's word to judge. 
and take away. Careful hearing is vital. Handling the word of God is important because of its power. Verse 18 has gain and loss in view. And as one person said, I know um, uh, several commentators reported it, God's word never leaves us the same when we encounter it. We should know uh, Isaiah 55, my word will accomplish that for which I send it. Doesn't always mean the word converts someone, it might convict someone. God's word always affects its hearers. And here in verse 18, you see there are two possible results. For the one who's committed to God's word will be blessed by that word. That word has an ongoing power to multiply the good. And that word also has the ability to bring judgment and to guard itself and to deal with those whose thinking is wrong. As one author put it, God's word will leave us either richer or poorer. Proverbs 9, verse 9 said, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. I think that's the nature of what the first part of that activity is. To the one who has, more will be given. Has what? For the one who has God's word and sets it on a stand and lives in its light, God will bless that. Disciples make progress in those ways. But the other side is the difficult side. From the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And I hesitate to tell you what it means, but I must. At least my understanding. And I'll be as plain and as applicatory as I can. I think those people we call nominal Christians who have heard things about Jesus in the Bible, they may own a Bible, they may underline verses, And they think they have a handle on it. But in general, they've got their light under a jar. They're not living in its light. They're not letting the light show to others. They're Christians in name only. Nominal Christians. I think Jesus is saying here, you guys who just kind of slip a verse into your pocket for whatever purpose, you think you've got it covered you're going to be undone. Don't fool yourself if you're you're just using God's word as as kind of a a remedy, a a placebo for the way you feel or as as a sticker on your life so that other people think you're something. God's word needs to be the controlling guide of our life. Even... What he thinks he has will be taken away. We know when Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse about returning someday and people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, how come you're turning us away? We, we did stuff and we knew stuff. Jesus will say, I never knew you. There is a category of churchgoer There's a category of Bible reader who thinks they got a handle on it. And Jesus says, God's word has such power and we're supposed to take such care 
Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. How important it is that we take care how we hear. Because God's word is a light, God's word is powerful. It'll make all things clear in the end. So given the command of verse 18, which I think is the heart of today's sermon, take care then how you hear. It's a command from Jesus. And if you aren't tracking with 17, which is hard, or how verse 18 works out, hear this command. Take care how you hear. Jesus wants us to be careful listeners to the word of God, careful readers by implication. And I'm hoping that since we're all present in a church, we all have that on our agenda. We want to hear God's word. We want to take it and we want to know it better. And so what I want to do in the second point is talk about how we hear the word with care. What practical helps can we get? And I'm so excited. I I found a sermon this week by Thomas Boston, one of the Scottish Puritans. And he has just some really helpful practical words uh, at the end of his short sermon. And... uh, Thomas Boston, by the way, his collected works have just been republished. They've been out of print for 200-some years. If you wanted to get a book of his before, it would cost you a pretty penny. Now you can have all these things. Thomas Boston, as I said, was Scottish, born in 1626. He was raised Presbyterian. His parents were very serious churchgoers. He was converted at age 11 by the preaching of one of the Erskines, who's a famous Scottish preacher in a nearby town. The text was John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God. And as uh, I think it's germane to what he's going to tell us, Erskine followed the, excuse me, Thomas would go to that church regardless of the weather. He sa- it said he would walk four to five miles each Sabbath to obtain food for his soul. Four to five miles. He would later write in his memoirs, In the winter, sometimes it was my lot to go alone without so much as a horse to carry me through the Black Adder Water River, wading whereof in sharp, frosty weather I very well remember. But such things were then easy for the benefit of the word which came with power. This man was careful to get the best preaching he could. Walking four or five miles, crossing the river, even if there wasn't a horse or a raft. Well, he tells us about hearing the word of God with care, and his thesis overall is, we must attend with diligence, preparation and prayer, receive it with faith and love, and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. A lot of practical help. And I like the way he suggested organizing our hearing into three segments. What we do before we hear or read the word. What we do during the hearing of the word. So that's like right now. So when we get to that part, you could do it right now. And then what we do after the hearing of God's word. So practical, so helpful. So this is what I gleaned, summarized from Thomas Boston. What do we do before? He says, prepare. Prepare and pray. Okay, prepare how? Prepare how? Well, he cited Jacob back in Genesis 35, and this is what Jacob said. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, 
Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may there make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Part of preparation is putting aside the other things that would clamor for your attention and your service. I like the plainness of that. Put away the household gods, the foreign gods. If you're going to prepare to come to church on Sunday, it matters what you do on Saturday night. If you're filling yourself and pursuing yourself with all sorts of other things and you don't get enough sleep and your mind isn't really prepared for the word of God, you're not going to hear it as carefully as you might. Just just some thought about preparation. Do we cultivate a sense of reverence and awe in advance? I like the way the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When we hear God's word, we're not just checking the weather or looking at the news. God is speaking. You open your Bible for your morning morning devotions. That is the word of God. You should prepare as you open it by remembering whose word it is. And a sermon is not just a speech or an address or declamation. It is the putting forward of God's word. And the preparation, one more thing. With preparation, he says, pray. And we should know this and we should be doing this. And I assume most of you are. He had three sub-points. And I really appreciate them, so you're going to hear them. Uh, First, he says, pray for the minister. Yes, thank you, Thomas. Pray for the minister. And he quotes what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in his second epistle. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. I know many of you pray for me, and I feel helped by the prayers of God's people. Oh, on Saturdays especially, Sunday coming, um, this is an intimidating work I've been called to do. Thank you for praying. Thomas Boston says it's rare to see a lively people under a dead ministry. So pray for the minister. He then says, pray for yourselves. He goes on and on, but I would just mention one verse. Again, from Psalm 119. I've encouraged people to pray it even as they open their Bible. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from out of your law. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of anticipation. It's a prayer understanding that God's word is God's word. And that we need his help to have our eyes opened. To understand it. Pray for the minister. Pray for yourselves and pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he even goes on to mention uh, Pentecost. How the Spirit fell on them and they preached and people heard. And thousands were converted that day. How about during the word? How do we improve our hearing during the preaching of the word? And, and this has, you can put this to work right away. Okay. 
Uh, three words I thought were key out of all the things Thomas Boston was saying. Diligence, discernment, and faith. During the hearing of God's word or during the reading of God's word, you need to have diligence. You need to understand these are serious matters of eternity. You need to be, have a focus and not multitask. There's some things we can do while we're multitasking. In the morning, it may bother some, but I sometimes have the TV news on and I have my news feed on my phone and I'm doing both at the same time. I'm listening and I give my attention to the one that's the most important at the moment. Multitasking. God's word should have our focus. We need to be diligent and disciplined. First Thessalonians also says this, as Paul writes, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Diligence, focus. And then discernment as well, because you're reading, you're hearing, and as you're reading, you're hearing, your understanding is taking shape. What does Jesus mean by that verse? Or what does that word mean? I wonder what the point is. Of course, nobody puts a lamp under a jar. What does he think? So as we're thinking of the meaning and seeking understanding, we need discernment. We need to be like those Bereans in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 17. They tested what they were hearing with the other things in God's word so that their understanding would be biblical. And during the hearing of God's word or during the reading of God's word, perhaps the most important factor is your faith. Do you believe the Bible is God's word? And do you believe what it is saying as you understand it? Hearing without faith is fruitless. Oftentimes that's where the Jewish people who had all the advantages of God's word for centuries, they fell short because of their lack of faith. That's taught in the book of Romans. It's taught in Hebrews. For instance, Hebrews 4, verse 2. He's, he's in chapter 4, he's encouraging us uh, uh, in the present day not to repeat the mistakes. So in verse 2, he says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Lots of people hear sermons. Lots of people heard Jesus preaching. But without the attitude of faith, without the submission to the word as God's word and believing it to be God's word, your hearing is fruitless. So during the preaching of the word of God or the reading of the word of God, you need to be diligent, you need to be discerning, and you need to have faith. Thomas Boston says, after the reading of God's word, after the hearing of the word of God, there's a few things we should be doing as well. So you can take notes, and in just a little bit, you can do this. You can meditate, discuss, and practice. I I like those three out of his comments the best. Meditate, of course, that's what the believer, that's what the godly man should do. When he's received God's word and when he spends time with it, He meditates on it. Do you remember the man of Psalm Psalm 1? 
someone, the godly man who doesn't uh, participate in the, the worldly things and make those his focus, it says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And there's another phrase. And on his law, he meditates day and night, meaning pretty constantly. We have the law, we like the law, we like God's word, the Bible, but do we meditate on it? My friends, this is really foreign to our culture. The, the attention span is shorter and shorter and shorter. There's a reason why kids like to watch TikTok and not Lawrence of Arabia. A full-length movie that moves at the pace of previous generations. Attention span is shorter. We need to meditate, and that means hold and hold God's word before our eyes, or some of the verbs talk about chewing. Meditate, to chew on something for a while. Is that what we do? Will you make time to meditate on God's word during the day, what you read during your morning devotions? Or on Sunday, will you come back to reflect on what the Bible reading was and what the sermon was? You're aware of meditation. I pray that we find time for it. Another word, though, he uses, Thomas Boston, he says, do we discuss it? Discuss it. If I'm going to be a careful hearer, this brother says we should discuss it. We should converse about the word. Where does he get that idea? From the Bible. You probably heard these verses from Deuteronomy 6 when I start to read them. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Right? We, we know this passage and where it's going. And, he goes on, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Well, that's a lot of talking. About what? About the word of God. We need to converse. We need to discuss it. I, I do like the Puritans. I like how they knew God's word and had wonderful practices for the most part. I think they can be misunderstood. There was a book about the Puritans uh, a dozen years or more ago called Godly Conversation. Oh, that sounds interesting. I saw the title. And the subtitle is Rediscovering the Puritan Practice of Conference. Okay, I go to conferences. What are they talking about? They're talking about... And they call it piety's forgotten discipline, discussing God's word with others. That's what they mean by conference and conversation. They get together, the Puritans, we might call it a Bible study, but it was much more the ebb and flow of their life. They'd sit down, and instead of pulling out their phone, they'd say, the Bible said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they'd reflect, they'd talk, they'd share. I know it's an exciting thing to meet Christians from outside your normal fellowship. And isn't it a beautiful thing to have that bond with another believer? You might meet someone on a retreat or uh, in your extended family that's a believer. You don't see them often, but there's a kinship in Christ. And typically what Christians like to talk about is God's word. It comes up all the time. I have preacher friends, and we pray every Saturday at noon, and always get the question, what are you preaching on? What are you preaching on? What are you thinking? 
and we'll talk, and, and it's with such joy to share and discuss God's word. My guess is you might have heard of meditation and you might be challenged by that. Maybe conversation is a little bit easier. You make a note saying, hey, can I call you Wednesday at 9 o'clock? I'd like to talk about the sermon. What? Yeah. I'd like to talk about what I've been reading in my quiet times. Or I'm, I'm in the book of such and such in the Bible and I'm not sure I'm understanding it. Can we chat? That would seem to show care in the hearing of God's word and in the reading of God's word. Meditate, discuss, and practice. Sometimes the word obey is used, and that's a very strong word to say obey. And I think practice gets a little bit closer to what our Lord wants us to do. He's talking about the lamp and its utility as a light to a room, and, and uh, we should practice what we have and put to use. Obey can sometimes lead to a checklist mentality and to... Uh, that sort of thing. But when we talk about practice, we think ongoing effort, ongoing lifestyle with a goal in mind to practice the word of God. Do you work on the things you've heard from God's word? I won't call them out, but I I appreciated somebody in the church saying, you know, you preached on this not too long ago. I'm still working on that. Oh, it just blessed my heart. Because I think that's what taking care, how you hear, means. It's not enough just to hear the sermon. It's not enough just to read a chapter in your devotions. You should put it to practice. Make a little to-do list. That Bible study method, I forget which group teaches it, at the very end they say, what God wants me to do. What does this passage tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself? What does God want me to do? What do you want to practice? These things, whether it's before the word of God or during the word of God or after hearing the word of God, it calls for intentionality because it's God's word. And these things have great import. It has great power and there's great blessing to be had. One of the blessings is how connected we are with the Lord Jesus when we hear and obey the word. This second paragraph in today's Uh, sermon is pretty clear let's review it before we talk about it verse 19 then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of the crowd and he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you but he answered them my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it How unexpected. But Jesus takes a moment in reality and uses it to further teach the importance of hearing and doing the word of God. Which is what Christians should want to do. I I should first mention, as you see in the sermon outline, there was a physical family of Jesus. Jesus did have siblings. Jesus was the firstborn to Mary, who was a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he was born. But Mary and Joseph, as a couple, went on to have other children. And contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, these were children of Mary. That's what the Bible teaches. I think it's pretty clear. Jesus had four brothers. We know their names. James, Jude. Both are New Testament authors, by the way. 
and then also Joseph and Simon. And he had at least two sisters because it refers to the sisters in the plural. Could have been three, could have been four, but at least two. So that's a big family, four, two, and then Jesus, and then mom and dad. And the household was a busy household. Jesus takes this opportunity not to disown his own family. And there are other gospel passages where this is mentioned, but here it's concise. Jesus wants to teach on this occasion the special nature of his spiritual family. So that's really the first lesson, the easy lesson here when Jesus says this. Spiritual family at times takes precedent over physical family. Your commitments to Christ and to his people are very important. That seems to be what Jesus speaks of here. William Hendrickson says in his commentary, spiritual ties supersede physical ties. We have to be aware of our brethren in Christ. Oh, so important. And it's not saying disown your physical family. And we know Jesus didn't do that. Even as Jesus is dying on the cross, he took care for his mother Mary. And in his resurrection, he took care to appear to his family. But this first lesson seems to put a precedent, a precedent on the spiritual family. But the second lesson and the main point is what Jesus says at the end. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One more nail hit on the head. You need to hear God's word and do it if you want to be related to Jesus. Hear and do the word. That fellow Norval Geldenhus said, what a privilege it is to know that if we really listen to Jesus and obey his word, we are still more closely related to him than his mother and brothers were in the mere earthly sense. Did you hear that? Did you hear Jesus? He loved his mother dearly. But he loves those who hear his word, believe his word, and obey it. Jesus loves his disciples. Jesus loves his faithful followers. He loves them so much he laid down his life to bring them to himself. We need to believe that. What Jesus said, how much he loves us. How important are his sheep to the shepherd. In closing, let me give you three exhortations. Hear with care. That's the main point today. So that's a great closing word. Hear with care. Not just hear, yeah, I heard that but to hear with understanding and carefulness. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, around the time of Spurgeon, said this, and it shocked me when you got to the end. He said, reading the Bible is essential to the attainment of sound Christian knowledge, yet the mere formal reading of so many chapters as a task and a duty 
without a humble desire to be taught of God is little better than a waste of time. Yeah, no checklist reading. Read with care. Don't ever treat the Bible with indifference. It is the word of God. We don't worship this book, but we come to it with reverence. That will change your life. Second application is pray for your family. I'm seeing Jesus see his family and highlight the spiritual family. It's a constant reminder to pray for your family. I'm sure Jesus prayed. Prayed for those siblings by name. And his prayers were answered. We're told in Acts chapter 1, his family came to faith. Listen to the summary, Acts chapter 1, 13 and 14. And when they had entered, this is the upper room after the resurrection. Uh, They went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Comprehensive. It's paying attention who's there. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And his brothers. James, Jude, Joseph and Simon and his brothers were there. Pray for your family and let your light shine. And of course, third and finally, practice the word. That's the vital distinction between hearing and thinking you have it and really having it. Really having it. The utility of God's word. Let it shine. Hear the word of God and do it. The brother of Jesus heard that and wrote in his epistle, James 1, verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do we hear that? Do we hear that? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I've read your Bible through many times, as my friends here may have, and how easy it is to glance across the page, how easy it is to drift in a sermon. Lord, have mercy on us for our casual and our careless listening or reading. Father, we thank you for the arresting and awakening words today. Talking about that lamp and then talking about your relatives. You've made your point, Lord. Help us to hear it and believe it and obey it. May our lives so dwell upon your word. And may we talk about your word and practice it so that we are an unmistakable light in whatever room we're in. For the benefit of our families, Lord. For the benefits of our neighbors. For the benefit of those who gather at church. Father, we thank you for your word. What a precious gift it is. Even as somebody said yesterday in a coronation ceremony, handing a Bible to the king, 
This is the most precious gift found on earth. We thank you for our Bibles, Father. May we hear, read, practice, and obey. For your glory, Lord, with your help, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.